0: You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Really good to see everybody out here today. And uh, it's looking a little... Nice right there. Can't tell if it's still raining. I'll say right now, it looks like uh, our potluck dinner is probably going to be in our basement here this week already. The forecast is for uh, rain and, and uh, colder temperatures, and I'm guessing probably we don't want to stand out there and be cold and, and wet just to endure the picnic grounds of the bison rain. So right now, We're going to plan to have it here in the basement. If it looks like the weather's taking a dramatic turn for the better, and we change that plan, then we'll call everybody and shift it out there instead of the other way around. So um, keep that in mind as you make your plans this week. All right. Revelation. Please turn to Revelation chapter 19. Go with me on this. Really, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to be offensive, I hope, when I get, get through this. Now, you're probably aware that obesity is considered to be an epidemic in this country. Yeah, bad way to start, right? More than one-third of adults in the United States are categorized as obese, while nearly 75% of adult men and more than 60% of adult women are considered to be overweight to some degree. Not surprisingly, then... We also see that dieting is rampant in America with more than 50% of adult Americans currently attempting some form of weight loss. In 2012, people spent more than $65 billion trying to lose weight. Now don't worry, I'm not your doctor. I'm not going to get all preachy about your eating habits. For much of my life, I have struggled with being overweight. The rest of the time could more properly be described as surrender, so just so you know. Rather than being disturbed by the issue, I prefer to try to find the humor in it. For example, I think this cartoon reflects the dilemma faced by many who try to lose weight, especially today. Man says to his doctor, everyone knows food is bad for you, but I don't know what else to eat. Yeah, you feel that way sometimes when you're on the diet. Nothing. Nothing's allowed. You can't have that. You can't have that. You can't have that. You can have water and air. That's about it. I mean, the first butter was good for you, right? Then it was bad. Now it's good again, maybe. It gets confusing in a hurry. Studies are done. Statistics are generated to try to help us stay on the right path. Some are helpful and some aren't, like this pie chart. The purple part represents the people who eat healthy, balanced meals, while the orange part Represents the people who wish this really was pie, not just a pie chart. Yeah, that's me. Don't forget, Potluck Wednesday, right? Pie is never out of style. Now maybe you've heard, maybe you've heard that we have some sort of innate desire to be slenderer. You know, if we just listen to that inner voice, right? Well, here's my response. Inside me is a skinny person screaming to get out, but he usually quiets down when I feed him cookies. makes him happy. The more literal among us may wonder how that skinny person got in there in the first place. And it may have been the end result of this kind of logic. The first character says, don't forget, you are what you eat. The other character says, I need to eat a skinny person. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we've got that one on the refrigerator at home. And no, I don't want to talk about it. <sighs> Finally, when it comes to dieting, I really prefer this approach. You know, if one diet is good, Two diets has to be better, right? Because you don't get enough food if you're just on one diet. So you, you follow two diets so you can get enough food. That works for me. Why am I telling you all this? Because I want to get you thinking about eating. Now, is that a mean thing to do for the preacher, right? Oh, that's not the slide that's supposed to be there. Is that a mean thing for the preacher to do at this point? Get you thinking about eating, right, at the beginning of the message? Well, we won't be talking specifically about food so much, So maybe it won't be too bad. But in Revelation chapter 19, there are two different times of eating portrayed. The first is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The second is called the great supper of God. Both of those things sound really good, don't they? Yeah. But the reality is that one of them is great, wonderful beyond our comprehension. But the other one is terrible with imagery that we really would rather not contemplate. When Christ returns, you will be in attendance at one of these meals. Which one and in what capacity are questions we will consider and answer today as we look at Revelation 19. And today's message is titled, Feasting or Feasted On? And we'll begin in verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever forever. And ever. And the twenty four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Now, this is the end of the fourth cycle of the church age as presented in Revelation, the way that I understand the structure of the book to be and the way that I'm presenting it here, and I do understand and realize there are other opinions about that. Um, I'm trying not to be so dogmatic about it as to not leave room for uh, other possibilities because, as we know, Revelation is largely symbolic. It's, it's difficult in places to get through, and there is a lot of controversy about it. I don't want it to be a divisive issue at all. But as I'm seeing the book, and as I'm presenting the book in this series, this is the end of the fourth cycle of the church age. From the beginning of the church, uh, perhaps in, with some of these presentations, it started with the birth of Christ, with others, the, the beginning of the church, uh, and moving forward until the time Christ will return and eternity begins. And each cycle has a different focus. And the focus of this cycle has, has been on the extreme wickedness that occurs probably during the time of Satan's being loosed for a short period of time, as well as the judgment and destruction of those who align themselves with Satan rather than with Jesus. That's a lot to swallow. Okay, That's a lot to think about. Last week we looked at the fall of the symbolic city of Babylon, who I think represents the kingdoms, the political entities, the ideologies that oppose God's truth. Chapter 19 continues from there, but before anything else is presented... Due recognition is given to God for the fact that salvation, glory, and honor all belong to him. And I would say only to him. Uh, Of these three, the emphasis in this chapter and in all of Revelation is on his salvation. Only God offers salvation to sinful men. And he makes this offer, and thank you, Elvin, for your meditation here this morning. He makes this offer through his son, Jesus, on the basis of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. As Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says about Jesus, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Man cannot save himself. And there is no other salvation except that which God offers. Now, the other side of the coin here is that God is also the one who brings about judgment. And in the case of Revelation 19, we're talking about that final judgment. This chapter depicts Christ's return. And that is when God's final judgment will be enacted. And here's something maybe we don't stop to think about sometimes. If God did not judge the wicked for eternity, and there are some that say that he won't do that, if God did not judge the wicked for eternity, salvation for those in Christ would not be possible either. To establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness, God must first eliminate all opposing powers and forces. Destruction of the wicked must take place if the righteous are To be saved, and his judgments are true and righteous because he's God. As we saw last week, Babylon was condemned for her harlotry and her wickedness and for her persecution of those who follow Jesus. And this chapter continues to follow that condemnation a little bit, uh, giving us the end stages of that. But here's what we find out by his judgment and destruction of the kingdoms political entities and ideologies that persecute christians in whatever time in whatever way god avenges the blood of the martyrs vindicating them for their perseverance and their faithfulness god has said vengeance is his and it will be carried out and this chapter speaks about his vengeance being carried out where he avenges the blood Of the Saints go on to verse 6 then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying hallelujah for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The relationship of God to his people has been compared to that of a bridegroom to his bride in both the Old and New Testament. Back in Isaiah 54, verses 5 and 6, it said this, for your, To Israel, for your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you, like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth, when she is rejected, says your God. God established a covenant relationship with Israel. That relationship was exclusive, meaning that God would be faithful in every way to his people, and he expected his people to be faithful in every way to him. The primary way that they violated that, of course, was through their idolatry, their unfaithfulness to Him spiritually. Right? This relationship was established again in the New Testament with the church. One of my favorite passages of Scripture—we covered it a couple of weeks ago in Family Night—or uh, we talked about it a little bit in our small group. There, uh, one of my favorite passages is John chapter fourteen, verses one through four. Jesus is speaking in John 14, and he says this, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Now, what Jesus describes here is what a bridegroom would do after the engagement, but before the wedding. After a couple were engaged in that culture, first century, uh, particularly in the Jewish culture, after the couple were engaged, the groom would go to his father's house and add on to the house. He'd build new walls and build new roof and build new rooms there. Rooms in which he and his bride would live after they were married. And when everything was ready... Sometimes up to a year later. The groom would return to get his bride. The wedding feast would take place. This formalized the marriage. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class this morning. What is it that makes you married? Right? Well, in the eyes of the government, it's the piece of paper that's been signed by the appropriate people. And that's what makes you married. Does that make you married? I don't think that really makes you married. I think it's very much the the commitment in the sight of God and most Church marriages, at least they used to, you know, uh, in the presence of God and these witnesses will be a phrase that you'll hear uh, during the course of that. The wedding feast would formalize the marriage, and the newlywed couple would go to live in the place prepared by the groom. And Jesus gave this encouragement to his disciples as though that relationship existed between him and them. Like the groom going to prepare the place for the bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul wrote of husbands and wives having a parallel relationship to that of Christ and the church. Paul tells husbands there to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So again, in the New Testament, we have another uh, expression of that relationship. And then in Matthew 25, we find the parable of the ten virgins. In this parable, as we understand the... the uh, Meaning of it, Jesus is cast as the bridegroom who returns in the middle of the night to usher those who are ready and waiting for him into the wedding feast. This parable is actually prophecy and the fulfillment of it is described here in Revelation chapter 19. The marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride, the church, has made herself ready. This readiness of the bride is the righteousness that each Christian possesses as a result of having faith in Jesus Christ. Paul names this righteousness in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, giving it in contrast to whatever human righteousness he might have had, calling his own righteousness rubbish or garbage or other word, depending on your translation, compared to the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And in verse 9... We come to the first of the two suppers of Revelation 19, the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Now, John doesn't go into great detail about this feast at this point. I think that chapters 21 and 22 are filled with more explicit descriptions of this event. not always portrayed as a feast. There's other details about it. But what we are told about this Marriage Supper of the Lamb comes from the angel speaking to John. And there are two parts to it. First, he says... Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that word blessed, it's the Greek word makarioi. This is the same word that's used so many times in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are they, right? It's a word that means happy, can mean fortunate, or even it can mean you you are to be congratulated. That's what this word blessed here is supposed to mean. In the Beatitudes, this word is coupled with some things that are a little counterintuitive regarding blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't sound like a blessing so much. Blessed are those who mourn. Eh, Not good with that. Or even blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. When Jesus spoke those words, I think his listeners would have been shocked to hear the word blessed associated with mourning or with being persecuted. But then we get to this passage here in Revelation 19. I think it all makes sense. Jesus' words of Matthew chapter 5 were anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19.9. Those who attend the Lamb's marriage feast are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb that we saw back in Revelation 7.14. They are the ones who have not received the mark or the number of the beast, but they've remained faithful to Jesus even up to and including being faithful unto death. These are the ones who have endured with perseverance the opposition of worldly kingdoms, political entities, and ideologies that oppose Christ. And if you're a Christian, if you remain faithful, to Christ until you die or until he comes then you are one of those who will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb celebrating and feasting at his table now the angel also says this is the second part the angel also says these are the true words of God assuring us even further that God always keeps his promises It's the consistency that we find in the scripture between what was said and what's done and what's said and what's done and when God says it, it always gets done and when there are things that God has said that haven't been done yet, we know that they will be done. Because God said it. Go on to verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judgeth and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In order for the wedding feast to begin, the groom must be present, and here he comes. On his way to the wedding feast, Jesus has something to take care of. He's going to vanquish his enemies once and for all. Now, the description of Jesus here builds on things that we've seen earlier in the book. He was described as having eyes like a flame of fire back in chapter 1. He used the name faithful and true witness for himself in chapter 3. The sharp sword coming out of his mouth also was mentioned in chapter 1. And to those things are added a few other images. The many crowns, the secret name of verse 12, and the robe dipped in blood that we see in verse 13. If there were any confusion about who this really is, John also names him as the Word of God. You know, John's the only one. John is the only New Testament writer to use this expression as a name for Jesus. He uses it in his Gospel. He uses it in 1 John. And he uses it again here in Revelation. And finally, Jesus has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his robe and on his thigh. This name was used for Jesus back in Revelation seventeen, fourteen as well. Well, what does this description of Jesus tell us? It tells us that he has power. It tells us that he has authority. And that he is ready and able and going to ride out against his enemies in judgment to conquer them. Verse 14 says that he leads armies from heaven. And John doesn't tell us exactly who the members of the armies are, but he describes them this way, as being clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Didn't we just... See something similar to that earlier in this chapter? Back in verse 8. That's very much like the description given of those who are invited to the wedding feast. You could call them the saints. They're Christians. Christians are the members of the Lord's army. Perhaps the saints of all time. I'm not sure how that goes. But as we'll see in a little bit, and again in chapter 20, the one who does all the fighting is Jesus. Okay? We're we're following him on the white horses. This is figurative language. It's symbolic. But he's the one who overcomes. It's his power. It's his authority. He's the one who does the fighting to be victorious. And it is this battle that leads to the other supper mentioned in Revelation 19. And it's not a pretty picture. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which comes from the mouth of him, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now the birds mentioned in Revelation 18.2, 18.2, that we saw last week, have now been invited to what is called the Great Supper of God. And this is what I mean. The, the description is a little misleading if you don't get, dig into it and find out what it's about. In chapter 18, verse 2, these birds were described as unclean and hateful. I think that was a characterization based on the kind of birds described. These are the birds of prey, the scavengers, the ones that are unclean in the Jewish thinking. And why? Why have these birds been summoned to this supper? In the symbolism, in the the way it's portrayed, in the imagery, I should say, they are there to clean up the battlefield. In the words of the angel, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And is that not a pretty picture? No. But maybe you can identify. Have you ever seen birds of prey or scavengers on the carcass of a dead animal? I remember years ago, we were headed to Great Falls, and it was... uh, winter time i don't remember late january early february what it was exactly the time of year but uh, there was snow on the ground over just this side of lincoln uh, we saw several eagles around a carcass of a deer that had been killed by a car i presume and if i remember right there were i don't know two or three or four bald eagles on the ground uh, around. There was one actually sitting on the carcass. They don't like to share very much. And then there was a golden eagle uh, over on the hill along with it. And that golden eagle was hopping around and he was flapping his wings like he was trying to take off, but he couldn't because he'd eaten so much. you know, gorged himself on the, on the meat of that deer that was there. Birds like these, along with hawks. Kites, vultures, buzzards, others, they they function as scavengers. And what that means is they're attracted to dead bodies and will eat all the flesh that they possibly can off of those dead bodies. And the condition of it doesn't really much matter. Sometimes the worse, the better, if that makes any sense. Here, more important than which birds are involved is who's on the menu. All those who opposed Christ and who are conquered by him in battle are subject to this horrific and appalling treatment. Now we have to remember, I I really don't believe these birds are literal. But I think they represent the futility and the uselessness of being opposed to God. The fate of those who who oppose God or who oppose Jesus Christ is to be defeated by him and abandoned in regard to any fellowship with him or with anyone else for all eternity. And again, Elvin's, communion meditation here this morning, is he brought that out to us again. The separation that occurred, the abandonment that occurred between God the Father and Jesus Christ when he was, Jesus was on the cross, that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Think of that kind of abandonment, not just for a few hours or a few days, but for all eternity. This is a partial depiction of hell. Contrary to popular belief, there won't be any parting taking place there. There won't be any fellowship, not between you and your friends, not between you and your family, not between you and anyone else. I believe it to be a place of torment and isolation. The kings of the earth and their armies, all those who come under the influence of the beast and the false prophet, are portrayed as being slain by the sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Subsequently, as mentioned before, the birds come down and feed on their carcasses. Meanwhile, the beast and the false prophet are taken and thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with brimstone, which is burning sulfur. Now, taken by itself, this passage might be understood to say that Only the supernatural manifestation of evil influence and practice are thrown into the lake of fire. All people who are outside of Christ will simply be killed and cease to exist. There's a lot of people that believe that. That idea is appealing to those who can't reconcile the concept of a loving God with a place of eternal torment. But we've already seen in chapter 14 that hell is exactly that. It is a place of eternal torment. When we get to chapter 20, verses 10 and 15 next week, we will see that along with the beast and the false prophet, Satan is also cast into the lake of fire, along with all those whose names are not found written in the book of life. There again, the lake of fire is described as a place of eternal torment. That is what the Great Supper of God is all about. And its participants its participants aren't feasting. They're being feasted on. Oh, how's your appetite now? I mean, it is disturbing imagery, isn't it? I think most of us here are okay with the images of Jesus as the conquering king. I think we're okay with the way John described what heaven will be like. Personally, I'd like a much more in-depth description of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, that sounds nice, doesn't it? Why wouldn't John spend more time describing that? Well, John wrote what he saw, and he wrote what he was told to write. So we transfer the question just a little bit. Why would God tell John to write so much about this disturbing picture of what's called the great supper of God? Why so much detail? Why so much gore? Why so much... Why so much disgusting imagery? I think the answer is that people really need to know what is in store for those who do not accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Pictures of heaven and descriptions of eternity with God are necessary too, and they are present here, but it is essential that we get the complete picture of what our eternal options are. And in his commentary on Revelation 19, former Cincinnati Christian Seminary's theology professor, Dr. Jack Cottrell, puts it this way, and it sounds funny, but it isn't. He puts it this way, our choice is to be either the beautiful bride or buzzard bait. And it sounds funny, but it isn't. And so the question is, which feast would you rather attend? And do you prefer to be the feaster or the feastee? There's no reason for anyone who's here today to have to look forward to being part of the great supper of God. There's no reason for that. When the final judgment takes place, if you belong to Jesus, then you will be one of those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, you'll need a righteousness that is greater than anything you could ever come up with on your own. You need the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, if you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, and if you're willing to repent of your sin and to live for Christ instead of living for self if you'll confess that faith to others and be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you can know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is on the guest list for the right feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you'd like to add your name to that list... T-